0: You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. You know, I just realized that we're coming to the end of a decade. Since we've been in the 21st century, it just seems like one decade, one long, long decade. But, you know, we called the 20s of the 20th century, the 1920s, the roaring 20s we're about to enter the 20s. What are we going to call them? The flaming 20s? The burning 20s? The mean 20s? I have a feeling it's going to get a name very soon if it hasn't already. But food for thought, right? I didn't even know. Did the teens have a name? Did we say, well, in the 20 teens, we blah, blah, blah? I guess we did, but I I never did. Anyway, in this program... In addition to interviewing cool people like Dale Atkins, the psychologist who will be with us momentarily, I'd like to talk about the five things that make my life better in an effort to remind myself and my listeners that there are things to be happy about as we enter the mean-burning, foul 20s. And I'm going to start with my five right now. Number one, the Korean film Parasite. I know it won the Palme d'Or, but I wanted to go see it. Well, maybe that's why I wanted to go see it. I'm not sure. How can I describe it as a quite surreal look at the wealthy and the poor in Korea? It seems to take place in the present, but it turns into a kind of mystery and a class warfare kind of movie in the most, you know, not with guns and armies, but with individuals. It's really interesting. It's a beautiful looking movie, beautifully shot. Love it if you would tell me what you thought of the film Parasite. And you know, you can do that at lisabernbach.com. Just write to me and guess what? I will write back to you. Number two was the conversation we had with our friends after Parasite, our friends Valerie and Rick, who wanted to talk about how we read. It was an interesting conversation. Valerie asked me a question that no one has ever asked me before and that I probably hadn't thought about too deeply, which is, how is it that you get the most meaning from your reading? And I thought about it for a second. And I said, well, I think when I'm loving a book, I deliberately slow my pace down, so not to rush through it and to savor it. How do you make your reading count? I'd be interested in that too. Anyway, I loved our evening with them and I loved the conversation. Number three, you know what I like? I like when I dream about food. I have very bizarre dreams and often they're about people that I know, often they're about celebrities that I don't know, Sometimes I'm interacting with these celebrities, but very often there is food in the dream. And I think I love that. I love eating all that food and not getting the calories. What can I say? Number four, vintage shrunken t-shirts. Now, sometimes when I think about what I want to wear, I look like somebody completely different. My fantasy version of myself, I'm wearing a little, old, soft cotton t-shirt under my blazer, my sweater, whatever, and I look very cool in it. Now, I currently have zero tiny vintage shrunken t-shirts in my wardrobe, but I like that look. What can I say? And number five, this is big. My boyfriend and I just turned a room that was kind of an office into a really beautiful library and how we did it was he built the shelves and I put the books in, in a certain kind of order. And I just love walking into the room and seeing all my books. They were in storage. That's a dumb place for them to be. I can't read them when they're in storage. Anyway, it was a great project that we did together. I'm very pleased. Now that the children are mostly gone, we have a a really nice room to sit in. Note to self, buy a chair. Coming up, the wonderful Dr. Dale Atkins, whose new book is called The Kindness Advantage. And... The good news is it's not too late to teach our children and grandchildren how to be kind and how to have good character. Don't go away. When I had an old-fashioned radio show on terrestrial radio, if anybody remembers, I had A wonderful guest on every other week. And I would have been happy if she'd been on every week, if not twice a week or five times a week. She was my kind of moral compass then. And she herself, Dale Atkins, is here with us at the podcast today for the first time. And I welcome her. She is the new author of The Kindness Advantage. I shouldn't put it that way. She's the author of a new book, The Kindness Advantage, Cultivating Compassionate and Connected Children, with her co-author and niece, Amanda Salzauer. Dale, it's about time I saw you. I am so happy to be here. I can't tell you. I have this smile on my face and
1: uh, it's just going to stay here for the whole time, I can tell you that. Thank you for having me
0: on and thank you for wanting to talk about the book. Well, the book could not be more timely because, as you say in your introduction, this is a coarse and brutal time in our country's culture and history. People get off on bullying, people bully to an unprecedented extent. Cruelty, as people have said, is a feature, not a bug. And Mm -hmm. uh, with the mess, there's no way with the interconnectivity that you can sort of uh, isolate your children from bad behavior that grownups are exhibiting. I often wondered if lying is okay. And personal insult is okay and done by people we're supposed to respect. How do you teach children to tell the truth, let alone be kind? Was that meanifying of America sort of the impetus for you and Amanda to start writing this book? It was, although we started writing the book six
1: years ago. And so many people think we must have written it, you know, kind of like overnight (laughs) when things really started to go south. But we were noticing things going south um, more than six years ago. About 10 years ago, I was talking a lot about what it means to be charitable and raising charitable children. And I figured, well, why don't I just start interviewing people who I think are charitable? And Amanda and I were talking. Amanda's a social worker, by the way. And we were talking about this idea. um, And we decided to do it together to maybe make this a book about raising charitable and compassionate children. Because we thought, what's really missing? As you said, the meanifying of America. What's missing? empathy is missing, compassion is missing, respect is missing, accepting other people, you know, being curious about them. There were so many, what we then ended up, you know, listing in the book as the fundamentals. But we, we wanted to see what are people who are charitable like? And there were a lot of commonalities. So we figured it's not just protecting your children in this environment. It's how can you know what your own values are? and then share them with your children in the way you live your life every day, the way you talk to them, in the way you treat other people, and the way you treat yourself. And so we came to this, you know, kind of morphed, as books do, as you know. And it morphed into a book about kindness and really raising compassionate and connected children, because the connection is what's missing. If you feel you can disrespect someone, somehow you don't feel connected in a way that lets you know that they're equal value to you and deserving of what you have. And once you start diminishing that other person and making them the other, it's not a good place to go.
0: Remember 10 or 12 years ago when we were frequent visitors and we started talking about the digit the digital world, and we started talking. I was a big scaredy cat that people staring at their phones all day would isolate them from one another. I have to tell you, this is no big revelation, that when you see families together at a coffee shop or at in a waiting room or something, you notice that each one is on his or her devices. So when you talk about what kind of family with what kind of values, it really strikes me that parents haven't made time for this conversation. Many parents have, and many parents haven't. But we're all so addicted to our screens that I think we forget that those are lost moments that we could be talking to one another. I know that just sounds basic, but to well, me it's, it's not basic anymore. It isn't
1: basic and it's actually the understatement of the year because all of your foreboding has all been supported in research about what happens with kids when they look at a parent or an adult, but mostly in a, a parent, who isn't attending to them and they're attending to their screen. Um, you know, particularly without saying, Oh, I just have to do this, something major just happened and I have to to kind of give it a, a context and a caveat. That and a time period. And a time period. That they that they the kids actually stop trying to get the attention. And when people have their phones on the table, for instance, at a dinner table, even if they are not on them, holding them, The signal, you know, that the message is, well, that's going to be really important. And unless you have, you know, a dying patient somewhere, um, or you're, you know, going to press the red button that's, you know, to stop a war, I mean, I really don't think most people do need their phones on the table. And they're buzzing and they're vibrating. And even if you just look at it to see who it is, it sends a message that whatever's going on there is probably more important than whatever's going on here. And what Amanda and I are trying to present as an option is there are places that can become somewhat sacred and you really have to have an idea of what it is you want what do you want at your dinner table do you want to talk do you want to give people space do you want to have an opportunity to pause and just kind of think about something and then have a real conversation and i don't know that you can do that if everyone is interrupted because i mean i know just for me if i have a thought or I'm engaged in something, and then I get a buzz uh, from the phone or some some sound. What was that term you used? Haptic.
0: <laughs> you get a haptic in my <laughs> Exactly. Where right. I-
1: and then you have lost your thought, or you have to come back to it, because the fl- the beauty of the fluidity of being in this moment is that there aren't interruptions, right? So when you have an interruption, you deal with that, then you come back, and very often people say, well, where was I? Well, that's where you were, but that's not where you are. Yes. Because what now has interrupted you, whether you deal with it or not, is somewhere now an additional something to deal with.
0: Uh, well, it's up, up up there in the front. For example, right. you say at at at, let's say, dinner, I'm just going to look up the name of the movie that I saw. Mm-hmm. So you pull up your phone. You take it. Maybe it's not on the table. You look at it. And then you see... Washington Post news yes, break. Yes, yes, and you're done. That's right. I mean, it is beyond
1: an intrusion. What it also does is kind of gives everybody else permission at the table to check their email. Or they all check do. Their text. They all do. I know. And and so I think one of the things that if we could get our arms around the idea that connection is eye contact, reading somebody's body language getting what, what, what's going on in the space where you are and really looking at someone and reading them and sharing that space, whether it's with your family or a friend or someone on the bus. You know, I was on the bus the other day, and I looked around. Every person on the bus was looking at their device, every single one. And the nobody kind of connected I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, you you got on the bus, you said hi to the person next to you, you sat down, and, you know, maybe you had a moment or you noticed something and then two people noticed and you kind of shared that moment. Now, you could be in your own little isolated world, going to and from work, going to and from school, and never really have an engagement with anyone else. And I find that very sad because... We're not only connected to the people in our families and our close friends, we are connected to each other. And one of the most wonderful opportunities that parents have with kids is just see what unfolds in front of you when you're walking your kid. You know, does somebody need help? Is somebody reaching for something on a high shelf and you can be there
0: for them? Is somebody wearing a really pretty coat? Right. And you want to say, Say, I love your coat. Right. I just, yeah, yeah, I I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I wonder at what age did you and Amanda find? uh, I understand that children have a natural, and from reading The Kindness Advantage, knowing that infants are basically born kind. Yes, we are hardwired. We're hardwired, (laughs) and you talk about the empathy even an infant can discern if the adult with them is in some way hurting because of the tests. You cite tests and studies. So what I'm wondering is, at what point have you blown it? It's a great great question. Yeah, Because, look, my science experiments are, are old and they're, you know, they're not really duds, but I kid. But, you know, I read your book thinking, oh, I missed this opportunity. Did I or didn't I? And then I remembered, no, I was a good mommy, uh, at least by by my <laughs> standards, uh, my low standards. But there has to be a point when character is formed and kids are modeling themselves after jerky parents, And there's more jerky parents these days than there ever were. I think that
1: there's always opportunities. I think that it's never too early and it's never too late to think about the fundamentals of kindness and to incorporate them into your everyday life. I don't know the that the issue is oh my god I blew it or I missed this opportunity. I think what's what we've learned from the book and from the feedback we've been getting is people are saying, "Wow, I I you know, I think I I'm doing that okay." That's really very positive and I'm I'm glad to see that that's going to be helpful. What we're also getting is Gee, I never thought of that. You know, I never thought how important it was to hold the door for someone who may be five steps behind me so that there's a choice that I'm making. (laughs) And then when I hold the door, I actually lock their eyes and, and either say hi or just acknowledge that there's a human being there. Those are the things that mean a lot to kids. It means a lot to us, too, because when we help someone... You know, when we talk about it in the book, we get something called the helper's high. And it's... An en- Oxytocin. Yes, Dopamine. Oxy- exactly, yeah. exactly. The, and these... are the in- helpful hormones. That's right. And they, they really, they're released in our brain, and we feel better, right? And we then are encouraged to do another act of kindness, which is really remarkable. We do that next act of kindness, and the person who's the recipient is also... a re- also has the experience of this release of endorphins and if you witness someone doing an act of kindness you get something which scientists call a moral elation because you actually have a release of serotonin and you then get this feeling of wow you know i'm watching that that's why we when we read something that's so encouraging about a hero or we watch something that's very inspiring we feel i mean even just telling you about this i'm getting little goosebumps because We feel this connection and this inspiration, and that's this contagion. So if we start doing it when kids are very young, and we start doing things with them when they're very young, it becomes part of who
0: they are. Crazy question. The lack of empathy that we see around us is something that so many in the population with um, developmental disorders... I mean, that that number Mm -hmm. has increased crazily, right? People on the spectrum Mm -hmm. are not... One of the things they may not have fully developed is empathy. And I'm wondering if the kind of epidemic of no empathy is related to the epidemic of autism spectrum people.
1: Well, it's it's a very interesting and a bit complex question because um, I think that we don't necessarily know that people on the on the spectrum don't have empathy. I think what we're used to is seeing empathy expressed in ways that people who aren't on the spectrum experience it. So that, in fact, there are kids and, and adults on the spectrum who are very capable of empathy. Um, the expression of it is what we then say, oh, they don't have it. Ah. So um, I think that in that regard, I think we need to pay a closer attention to those who, and for the moment, forget about the spectrum, people who, quote, unquote, are typical, who are absolutely not having empathic responses when they are witnessing someone suffering, when they are very engaged with their online world, and the real world is going by them without an opportunity to interact. There are opportunities. They're not just taking those opportunities. And there's some interesting studies that are being done with college students, many of whom have a reduction in empathy as we compare them to children, young adults, um, 20 years ago. And so I'm very concerned about those kids because we can give them opportunities to become more connected, and we see differences. So it's never too late, and I think that there is opportunity to have kids connect and have young people connect in ways that are meaningful to them. It has to be an expression of who they are.
0: Well, that's something that is very powerful in your book, which are the case – the, the anecdotal stories Thanks. of the young people, I <laughs> love them, the young people who have been personally affected by someone they saw or an episode they saw, um, uh, kids who couldn't read. Yes. And a little girl feeling so grateful that she could, that she started a charity. Yeah or the young girl who went to India. Can you tell that story about the orphans? Neha. Yeah, she was amazing. She's a a girl of,
1: um, her parents were uh, born in, I'm trying to remember her parents were born in India. Her relatives live in India. Uh, she was born in the United States, and she used to go to India every summer with her parents to visit her family. And she realized that there were a lot of kids who didn't have books, and they went to visit an orphanage. And long story short, she decided that she, at the time she started, I think she was nine, and, you know, kind of fast forward to today – and she started uh, programs for the kids in the orphanage where they would learn to sew, they would learn all kinds of skills, they would learn computer, they would learn uh, all kinds of reading. There are so many programs in this and other orphanages, and this has been this has become her life work for which she's been recognized. Um, the other girl, I, when you were talking about uh, reading, reading, there was a girl named Maria, mm-hmm. and she just couldn't believe that kids didn't have books, so she decided that she was going to, before her 18th birthday, she was going to provide books for kids in every state, and she did, and then she just went on to provide books for programs all over the world, and... You know there are kids who who have this idea, like the little girl you may remember Phoebe, who was five, and she passed a homeless person, and she couldn't understand what that was about. And her family collected soda, you know, soda cans and uh, recycled them. She said, "Well, if we recycle, if we recycle them, why can't we collect and raise money for the food bank?" And her. You know, Her goal was she was going to raise $1,000, and everybody was saying, no, 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 there's too much money. And she ended up you know, raising, I think, $3,700, which was enough for 18,000 meals for the um, people at the food bank who came to have meals. And you know, this is a five-year-old. So what we're trying – we don't think everybody has to start a nonprofit. Right. But we do think that when a kid decides to sell her toys in order to be able – to provide a bicycle for another kid or to recognize that there's someone else that they can serve, this is when the change happens. And it's remarkable. I
0: mean, Amanda and I found kids, these... these kids owned what they did and, and cared yes. deeply. As you said, it's yes. Neha's life work. Yes. Because she wanted to do something and then the doing of it was so fulfilling. It was fulfilling and
1: she was able to fulfill it because she had parents and other people who supported her, who didn't say, "Oh no, you know, you you can never do." It's a drop in the bucket. They they noticed how important it was to put that drop in the bucket, and then yes. that becomes larger. So they were encouraged. They were encouraged, and they were supported, and they were in many cases introduced to other people who might be able to be part of what they were doing. And you know, man and I found a lot of these stories on the internet, and we've we've been able to con- be connected to some of these kids, one of whom is a young man named Max. You may remember him. And, you know, he, he was too young to volunteer. Nobody would accept him. He
0: wanted to volunteer at homeless shelters, Well, right? he
1: wanted to volunteer. Right. The place that would accept him was a homeless shelter. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. So he started, and he brought a lot of his peers, his his kids, friends when he was seven, and they started doing things at this homeless shelter. And one kid was teaching chess and one kid was teaching music and they just got parties together and dance parties and... And he's now 16, and he has something like 250 volunteers. He has an unbelievable organization. They're doing tutoring.
0: and Didn't somebody teach another kid violin?
1: Yes. <laughs> Thank you for paying such close attention, Lisa. Yes. And they had Thanksgiving dinner, and they, and they were sure to include this. each setting had china and linens. And when asked about it, he said, every child is special, and I want them to feel that. So for a kid to understand the importance of that each of us is unique and each of us needs to feel special so that we can be recognized, it doesn't matter where they're living, it doesn't matter what their income is, it doesn't matter their parents, it doesn't matter if they can read, they are all special, and then you can figure out what what we all can do there's another kid who said, I don't want to be your service project. I want to do your service project with you. So both of these kids, one of whom was, had a disability, um, they both started to play chess and they were then both teaching chess, you know? So again, it's also how do we help kids who may be entitled in their lives to not feel that they are doing something other than what they should be doing, well, which and- is service. For another human being.
0: As as we know, uh, community service has become one of the boxes that kids have to check off when they are applying to college, and many schools have a certain number of hours they require for students to do. And what's sad about that, I mean it's great that that becomes part of the curriculum, that they need to have fulfilled to graduate. But what's bad is I do hear a lot of kids saying, oh, I've got to do 12 more hours. What am I going to do? Uh, does this count or does that count? So there has to be a way to give it some thrilling purpose as opposed to satisfying a requirement. And I guess part of that is parents being enthusiastic about the effort and being supportive of their kids.
1: Part of it is. And The kids who really do really well in those situations are kids who participate in surface learning programs, most of which are started in middle school, but a lot go through high school. And what happens is, which is different from just somebody going out and volunteering, which, which can be really positive or maybe not. Um, first of all, they have to be doing something that is really, that resonates within them. Just because it was their friend's choice doesn't mean it's going to resonate with them. Right. But then in service learning programs, the, the beautiful thing about them is that they come back and they talk with one another and with typically a teacher who is someone who understands what they're doing so they can talk about the feelings they have, the experience, how it affects them, how they feel they've affected the other the other situation, whether it's working with animals or working with the environment or working with people, so that there really is this total integration. And the other thing I just want to pick up on what you said, Lisa, cuz it's so important is like, oh god, I have to do this. Yeah, you know, sometimes you do. Sometimes you make a commitment, and it isn't always going to be fun and games. It isn't always going to be easy. Sometimes you're going to go to your commitment because you're committed to do it, and you may be tired or you may have a test, but you have a commitment. And I think that that's also part of what we're trying to teach people which is if you are connected, there is a responsibility that you have. And, I mean, Amanda and I think that all of us have a responsibility to, in some way, raise the level. (laughs) And we can do that with the way we interact with people and the way we model kindness, compassion, and acceptance. Because otherwise... We're all going to be living in our individual silos, and we will not feel what we innately feel, which is if someone's in distress, an infant not only looks, but responds in a way that is, is really the underpinnings of empathy. When you read to little children, when you read to kids who are four and five years old, and you talk about people feeling a different feeling than they have, or solving a problem in a different way... Kids become aware that, oh, there are people who do things differently from me. And, oh, I think one way, they think another way, instead of, well, you're bad because you don't think the way I do. And you open a world to kids. Teenagers who are giving, when you ask them what were, what were among the most important factors when they were growing up that made them giving teenagers, was parents who read to them and talked about the difference they could make in the world and talked about characters. Why did they do that? What was their motivation? You know, do you think that character would do that if his mother was watching? Or do you think that that character would have done that if she wasn't with three other girls? Um, What would you do? Have you ever felt that? Those conversations really help kids become more aware of others and giving to others and being kind.
0: Well, I want to say, before we go to Dale's five things, which are actually six things, (laughs) uh, that the Kindness Advantage is available for sale at Amazon and other places online. And it also has a workbook component, a notes component, and gives families both reading points for the adults and discussion topics for kids, and it's really useful. And uh, this is coming from one of the kindest people I know, our guest, Dale Atkins. So you're th- somebody who I think wakes up with a smile. I just have that feeling. I've never <laughs> awakened with you, but I just have that that feeling. Your five things... Um, Let's, let's do them in no particular order. But is waking up your number? I'm going to make waking up your number one. Okay? Waking, waking up is my number
1: one because I feel very grateful every day I wake up because that I did wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and the older I get, the more appreciative of that I am. And I acknowledge it. I mean, and then I think, what am I supposed to do today? You know, so if I was lucky enough to wake up, what am I supposed to do today that is going to make it worthwhile that I woke up today?
0: And That's a good way of framing <laughs> it. Or so, should I just stay in bed and watch Dr. Phil all day?
1: Which is also an option. <laughs> and that just may be, saying. But that may be the kindest thing to do for myself that day. Because we're talking about kindness. It's really hard to be kind to other people if you're not kind to yourself. So you've got to kind of figure that out. And also, if you're a parent or a grandparent, Role modeling for your kids that you can take care of yourself. Oh, it never ends. (laughs) It never ends. The burden. Okay, so that's number one. I'm gonna keep that number one. The rest is kind of other order, but that's number one.
0: Okay, let's come up with the number two.
1: (laughs) Okay, I would say being in nature every day.
0: Yes. Okay. And and anybody who knows you has seen your Instagram and your Facebook (laughs) pictures. You are basically. For someone who works in New York City, you're basically in (laughs) nature. nature. I know.
1: I know. know. Because for me, it's the greatest leveler. It's the greatest reminder of balance. It's the greatest reminder that there's so much more important in the world than (laughs) me and my problems. And that there's just the wonder of it, the constant change. You know, you, you take the same path every day, and it's different every day if you notice. And nature forces you to notice. And this book is all about noticing. Notice where there are opportunities. You know, look through the lens of kindness. Look at the wonders in this world. And and I think it helps people get out of themselves um, because we're all a bit in ourselves a lot. Mm-hmm. And and I think for just for me, um, I just love it. I mean, I, I love it. I mean, even in clement weather, I'm like, if I'm bundled up... I I yeah. love it. Yeah. I know everybody thinks I'm crazy, but it's it, it is it is one of the things that makes my life better. Excellent. <laughs> Number 3. Playing with my dog. Mhm. Okay. I've always had a dog. Mhm. And Samson is soon to be 12. I don't tell him his age. <laughs> you know? Yes. I keep calling him he- my puppy. <laughs> yes. And he's a therapy dog and often he comes to work with me. Oh, he does? Yes. And And your patients must love him. They do. They do. And he's just, he's wonderful. I mean, we used to do a lot more therapy, official therapy work, and his specialty was working with people who have Alzheimer's. And they would just... I mean, he just has this knack, this magnificent connection, and people just are marvelous with him. Um,
0: you know what I love? I just thought of yes. that saying, be the person your dog thinks, thinks you, you are. are. Exactly. You know, yes. that's all we're saying. That's right. You're, that's you're, right. You are a hero to your dog. Mm-hmm. and we have Be s- that hero. Right.
1: We have so much to learn from them if we really watch them, and they're just there and they're so there was a cartoon I saw once it was a man and his dog they were sitting you may know, you may have seen this and the bubble over the man's head was all the things he was thinking about all this the problems mm-hmm. and the bubble over the dog's head was just a bone
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly that i like simplifying yes, <laughs> yes. we're it we're really very- all we all could use a bone.
1: Yes, we all could use a bone, and that—and that's all
0: there is. That's all there is. That's is all the the bone, there is. It's right. the wonderful bone. That's—that's that's it. I <laughs> guess the series is over. We don't need this show anymore.
1: Okay, number four. Um, I'm very blessed to have a family and friends, and I, you know, as you know, I have a mom who's almost 98, who is a magnificent role model in many ways, and I. You know, I have a, a, a She looks about 70. 70. Right, right. It's crazy. When we were younger, people used to say to my mother and my sister and I, you know, are you sisters? Oh. And they're still saying it. They are? <laughs> wow. Wow. It's crazy. You know, I'm very blessed. I have a, a wonderful man, my husband, and we have two sons and two grands. T- Six grandchildren, yeah. two great daughters-in-law. Oh, wow! And I'm and I'm very blessed that I have friends that I've had for a lot. A lot of my friends are friends I've had since I was a little girl.
0: That's fantastic.
1: And I and that's very unusual. And I don't take it for granted. Although I need to work much harder at being in touch with people more well, frequently. Well, you travel a lot. Yeah, I travel. Oh. <laughs>
0: I think we have room
1: for one more thing. Okay, but I have to put them together because it's okay. the surprise encounters. Um, and sometimes with those surprise encounters, you know, you, you, you're able to do things for other people. You're just able to just be with them, people you don't know, and just engage with them. And you never know what the conversation is going to be. Um, I remember I was really, really late. I was visiting a preschool in—it um, was Little Dolphins Preschool, actually, uh-huh. in Santa Monica— And I had to be there very early, and I was stuck in traffic in Santa Monica, on the Santa Monica Freeway. And it was obvious I was going to be really, really late. And I had this wonderful driver, and he was from Bhutan. And it's not a country where a lot of people are from. And I actually had the incredible you had been there mis- incredible fortune to be there so we had this fabulous conversation all the way and we talked about meditation and we talked we talked about so many wonderful things and i arrived at my destination so calm and so relaxed because of this wonderful encounter and the thing was you always have a choice you know i mean you could make yourself crazy because you're going to be really late or, and then arrive like a tizzy, Brazzled yeah. right, Or you can say, There's absolutely nothing I can do about this. How can I make this the best opportunity of all? It takes a lot of practice, and I don't do it well all the time, but it's something I kind of aspire to. And that's kind of why we wrote the book. We wanted the book to be just a reminder that there are a couple, there are always different ways to do things and you can always say what's the kind thing to do in this situation you know
0: i agree i agree well thank you dale so much thank it's you, always Lisa. a treat to see <laughs> you and we i really am thinking about changing the name of this podcast to the bone <laughs> <laughs> not kidding the bone that's what it is it's let's pare it down to the essence you've been listening to five things that make life better for now with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Dale Atkins, author of The Kindness Advantage, Cultivating Compassion and Connected Children, Everyday Ideas for Raising Kids Who Care, published by Simon & Schuster. You can follow Dale on her website at drdaleatkins.com or on Twitter at Dr. Dale Atkins or Facebook at Dale Atkins. And you could probably see her every week on the Today Show. I didn't mention that, but... You know, now I have. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio, or wherever else you can find this bone. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay warm and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.